Uh, as, as Terry prayed, uh, we, ha- we began a new series in the book of Acts uh, last week, and we're partway through Acts chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 12 uh, to the end of the chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll be able to follow on the screen or over someone else's shoulder. So it says this, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together, constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, there he fell headlong, his body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, It is necessary to choose one of the men who has been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Barsabas, also known as Justus, and Matthias, and they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you've chosen to take over his apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. This passage is in a strange uh, in-between zone. Um, when Jeremy was here a few weeks back, he was preaching and, and used that expression, a grey zone, a kind of a period of time in between two different eras when things are changing, things are flux, maybe things are a little bit strange. And here we are with just a group of 120 Jesus believers waiting. They've received instructions from Jesus and now uh, they're to follow this instruction, wait. Um, and so they're waiting for the, the Spirit to come. The Spirit comes in, in chapter 2. I remember just at the end of last week's meeting, Sarah came and shared a picture from the microphone um, from, a, from a drama production she'd been involved with where there was a clock on the stage and the, the actors were looking at the clock and expecting, and the script required them to say that it was, that it was 6 o'clock when actually the, the time was 2. Or maybe the detail was different. It was the other way around. And she felt that God was saying that God's timing is perfect and we're to trust him. And I wonder if, I was pondering that through the week and kind of wondering if when we think about, when we hear that, do we assume 
that God is slow and so that we have to wait longer than we would have liked. And, and no doubt there are loads of times uh, when, when that's the case in experience. Um, holding a call in God. You, know, you could think of Moses trying to rescue God's people, as it were. Actually, he goes into the wilderness for 40 years. God's people go through these times sometimes where there is just a profoundly long wait. And you even get the disciples in the earlier part of, the, of this chapter uh, saying, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And if we're imagining that the, the absolute fullness, the full revelation of God's kingdom and like eagerly asking Jesus, like when's the, when's the king, when are we going to see the kingdom of God in its absolute fullness? Then, well, no one knows the time or date. It's, that's a long wait. We have, if you like, been waiting for thousands of years to see the kingdom in its absolute fullness. One day we will see, and that's the hope that sustains us in our walk following Jesus. Sometimes the wait is for an awfully long time. Because God knows best. And sometimes it's actually the other way around. That God's timing is sooner than we might think. So let's not just default to one way. Like, like every issue is resolved by us having to wait thousands of years. Sometimes God does things faster than we'd, uh, we'd expect. Who knows how long they thought they were going to be waiting for. It's a matter of days. It's a matter of weeks. It's not a matter of months, years, or kind of millennia. It's not for you to know the timing, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses. Yeah, one day, Lord. At some point, we could imagine that happening. In, in decades to come, there'll be a great move of God. It's obviously, obviously, we understand, Lord, it's going to take a while to get to that point. And God has the right to completely surprise us. He could be doing that with you personally, whereas you might think, yeah, I'll, I'll serve God. I've got this call. I'll do X, Y, Z. It's in the future sometime. For now, I'll just, I'm just waiting. Yeah, because that's the right, the godly thing to do is to wait. Yeah, the godly thing to do is to wait. But it's to wait with expectation and a sense that God could just do the remarkable in a couple of weeks' time. God could blow the doors off in a couple of weeks' time. I know recently, um, obviously with the heat wave, uh, that we experienced. Um, there was examples of wildfires uh, in, um, I suppose it tends to be agricultural land, and maybe that's not so uncommon other places, but for us in the UK, that's like weird, because we're only really used to rain. Um, you know, kind of wildfires would, would suddenly spark, and you know, what, what is that fire triangle? What do you need? You need, you need oxygen, you need fuel, and you need heat. And so you have like, Farmers having an understandable panic attack because they can't control the heat. Uh, they can't shoo the oxygen away, but they're trying to rescue their crops. There'll be, there'll be farmers who've lost like, tens of thousands of pounds worth of crops to a sudden wildfire that just ignited in their field because it's been so dry and so hot. In fact, there's footage of one kind of plowing up, trying to get around the fire, trying to plow his field to, to reduce the amount of crop or fuel that would be about to burn. Just try and save the rest. Just quick go, because something's happened faster than we expected. It's more dramatic than we expected. And um, no one wants a wildfire. This sounds like a negative image, but it's probably quite a good way of describing what happened in the book of Acts. 
you get the, you know, the, the right conditions, as it were, God sends the Holy Spirit, and it says any number of times through the book of Acts, and the word of God spread. The word of God spread. Like this wildfire just encroaching on more and more territory, going more and more global, going more and more into the Roman Empire, because God's at work, God's on the move. Um, it, it, I guess by saying the word of God spread, we could understand that's talking about the number of people believing the word of God. The number of people following Jesus is growing. But that's how Luke chose to put it. The word of God was spreading. Don't you want the word of God to spread in your own life? And the word of God to spread in the here and now. That's why our discipleship has to be saturated with the word of God because that's what we want to spread into other people's lives. Not just our thoughts and feelings, not just our opinions, but the word of God spreading. That's why we're here. And that's why Luke is writing. He's saying, get on board with what God's doing. This is now kind of maybe a few decades after the events that Luke is recording. And he's still saying, see what God is doing and get involved. And we can see that ultimately, this is a work of God. God is about to send the Spirit in this profound, empowering way. And so we could wonder, what are we to make of a passage like this in this in-between peculiar grey zone? We're to see it as an example of good preparation. If you get the conditions right, when that spark, when that flame, when that heat comes, it's just, it's going to accelerate. It's going to go. It's not going to be this tiny incremental change. It's going to be sudden, it's going to be dramatic, and it's going to be powerful. And so if we want that kind of spread, if we want to see the kingdom of God coming in that kind of way, as even Ginny has been prophesying this morning as well, this sense of, of, of God kind of taking the covers off, revealing to the world, here's my people, here's the church, here's the hope of the world, listen to them. If we want to be that kind of people, then it would behove us to pay attention to this kind of peculiar passage. And so as we go through... Would you believe, I'll, 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 I'll mention three things. Da, da, da. No, what a surprise. Uh, three, three priorities, three conditions, three things that we can attend to that involve us getting ready to receive almighty power from God to see his kingdom and his power uh, spreading. Uh, and then, having gone through those three things, I'm going to unpack a few pointers as to how I think that I might affect or apply in quite a focused way to City Church Sheffield right now in the 21st century. So the first thing this passage shows us as this positive preparation in an in-between time Luke shows us a praying community. And you see that right at the beginning of the passage, and you see that right at the end of the passage too. You kind of get two slices of bread that make a sandwich. They're, they're, they're right there, surrounding and, and, and kind of bookending the passage. Uh, we see a people gathering together in prayer. They've gone back into Jerusalem, back into the upstairs room where they were meeting, we don't know if that's the room where they used to spend time with Jesus or that's where the Last Supper was. Who knows? They've got a room and it's big enough for 120 people and that's where they are. Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, 
Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judah son of James. They all joined together. And so there's this context of, of fellowship. And we find that all of them joining together, it's not just those 11 names. Because uh, part of what Luke might be stressing is, look at the different people, look at the different groups that are all coming together. So we've got the 11, but this isn't just a group of men. This is men and women. Hence we see uh, Mary and other women Disciples of Jesus gathering together. And it's not just for, it's not just a gathering of the original members. This is all of them joining together. So it's not just those who were with Jesus for three or so years and remember absolutely everything from first-hand experience. I'd argue we've got some relatively new believers in the group. Why do I say that? Well, because Mary's there and some of Jesus' brothers. Now, we were going through John's gospel and we got to chapter 7. And what do you see in chapter 7? It says, even his own brothers did not believe in him. So they've not been, you know, you can read through Mark's gospel and see that they, they're kind of like, there's a certain point where the family has stood outside when Jesus is teaching and they're trying to correct him and think he's mad. Come out outside, your family's here. Jesus, what are you doing? That was, their, that was their attitude for possibly quite a significant part of Jesus' ministry. They were not believers. But they've seen something and now they're responding to the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and they're in. This kind of family has come in, but they've not come in as some controlling influence. We'll take it from here. I mean, I gave birth to him, for goodness sake. I think I know him better than you. I'm taking over. You know, they, they tuck in and a community together. And maybe, maybe they're sharing what they receive from Jesus on different occasions when Jesus appeared after his resurrection. So they all joined, uh, they all joined together. Uh, but they're not just joining together for a chat. They're joining together constantly in prayer. They have promises. They have instructions. And now they are praying that back to the Lord, not in just some symbolic, tokenistic way. It's right to start the meeting in prayer and then do whatever we want to. This is, this, this is their reason for gathering. This is their purpose. They are praying. They've heard some amazing promises and instructions from the Lord Jesus. At which point they might be like, yeah, we're fine with the waiting part because you've just told us to go to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And we're looking around and we're considering the whole earth and there are 120 of us. We're fine with waiting, Jesus. You take your time, Lord, because this, this is massive. And this is world-shaping. We're not going to achieve this in just one moment or one meeting or even in one generation. We're setting ourselves up for something that is for all time here on. This massive call, strangely enough, motivated them to pray. Let's not underestimate the significance of what God can do off the back of 120 people praying. And arguably, we're all here. Listening to the word of God 
worshipping him and knowing something of his presence together, most of us believing in him and already having personal knowledge of him, we are here because 120 people thought it was worth praying. And, and think of how far the wildfire has spread from that initial spark that it's come all the way to the UK over all those years. Like we weren't first in line. We weren't close. There was nothing special about this nation that God should ever chose to bring the gospel here. It didn't originate with us, but it came as far and it's impacted our lives. Praise God for 100 people praying. And not just praying for like this next week. Like it would be good for us to be praying for the next week. It would be good for us to be praying uh, for our young people and for New Day and in, in the life of the church. There's stuff, you know, there's stuff that's coming up soon. Let's pray about that. But let's not just pray in light of the things that we've decided to do in the next week. Let's pray in light of this global vision that still, uh, this global mission that still continues. Not just how do we handle being a group of 120 people. But how do we handle thousands of people coming to Jesus? Let's, let's pray in light of Jesus' promises that pertain just as much to us as they did to them. Let's pray in light of the mission that pertains just as much to us as it did to them. In our day and our time, let's not imagine that this is, only, this is the only tricky time to be a believer in Jesus. When you see the amount of heat that the apostles and the early church took for standing up boldly and speaking courageously, it's always been hard to believe in Jesus. It's always put us, put believers in a challenging place. I've been reading uh, just the last couple of days um, uh, a book about some, some Christian heroes from the 1700s uh, about George Whitfield and someone else, John Wesley, and talking about their discovery of the gospel in Jesus and what they did about it. And it's easy to focus on the fact they had tremendous success. They preached in the open air to thousands and over a course of 30, 40, 50 years um, saw tens of thousands of people profess faith in Jesus who'd never set, set foot inside a church. And they would do crazy things like jump on, well, I suppose lots of people did this, but jump on a boat and go across the Atlantic. And it might be stormy and it might take them months, but they did that so they could get to the other side and tell people about Jesus and then come back again. And we go, wow, that's amazing. Do you know what? It was jolly hard for them. And the reason often they would be preaching in the open air is because most churches in the UK would not welcome them to preach on a Sunday just for preaching the true apostolic gospel of Jesus that is offensive in each and every age. It's never been easy. It's never been straightforward. It's never been without opposition. We could pray for unity across the churches, but believe me, if we're bold and if we're courageous and we actually believe the New Testament, we'll take some heat, won't we? And thank God for the Methodist movement that started off the back of their labour. Oh my goodness, what am I on? Okay, here we go. I think I'd be right in saying that Methodist architecture 
When they got to planting congregations and designing their own buildings, do you know, do you know what? There would be a kind of like uh, fence, I don't know what, railing around the pulpit. It'd probably be a bit higher than this. And the stairs wouldn't come down. The stairs would go up. And you think, well, why did the stairs go up? It's so the preacher could escape when the baying mob came in. It's always been a massive privilege and it's always been hard to be a believer in the gospel. But that's what we're called to be. And we're true, we're, we are called to build our life here and trust that this is the inspired word of God and therefore to be a praying community in the name of Jesus. I'm going for it. Thank you. Because God will send the Spirit. So let's pray. And let's pray some big stuff. And let's believe what Jesus says about prayer. And let's heed what James would say. You don't have because you don't ask. So let's ask for a massive move of God. Let's ask for a church in this nation to be woken up. Let's ask for boldness brought by the Spirit of God. That we're not just trying to cook up our own little innovative ideas, we're trusting the New Testament. And let's believe this, that prayer is not an excuse for being inactive. We're not praying to hide away. We don't gather to pray to avoid responsibility. Oh yes, we're just happy to wait, Lord. Sometimes that could be our motivation in a way. That's not what's going on here. They're praying and they're going to take action. Their action might seem a little bit strange to us. Because we get to the end of the passage and it becomes about casting lots and one of two people being chosen to take on apostolic ministry. We're not about to start casting lots as our decision-making strategy in church life. This is what happens in a grey zone before the Spirit came. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we don't really tend to see decisions by the casting of lots. We see a community has received the Spirit and together they can discern where the Holy Spirit is leading them. But there are people who are prepared to take action. There's something that we need to pray, but do you know what? There's something we need to do. And the thing that they needed to do was choose a replacement for Judas and work out who that would be. So let me move on to the second really important thing that we need to learn from in this passage. Let's be a praying community and let us seek I guess let us also follow, but let us admire, let us see godly leadership in the church of Jesus Christ. And that's the next kind of layer, if you like, in the sandwich. Maybe that's the margarine that's spread on the bread. Because we get that when Peter here comes to the fore. No longer compromised, no longer with a damaged conscience, Jesus has restored him. So what? So he's ready to lead. And this is what Jesus had said to him, actually, that Luke records in Luke 22 and in verse 32, well, 31. Jesus had said to him all those weeks ago, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. And that's exactly 
what he's doing now. He's strengthening the brothers. This is an example of godly leadership. And so what Peter does is he addresses what we might call the elephant in the room. Now, I don't know, that might be a, a strange phrase that doesn't carry across every culture. I mean, if, if you imagine right now, here he comes, Nelly has just walked in, bashed through the door. There's now this larger kind of gaping hole back of the hall and it's pounding to the front and, and just sat down over there. Probably about to do an almighty poo or something. Now, would it not be a bit strange if Nelly the elephant came in, having said goodbye to the circus, I'll move on, and, and, an actual real live elephant, let's say it's even an African elephant because they're a bit bigger, it's an actual African elephant is in the Jubilee Centre, would it be strange if I did not mention that at all? So you've got to talk about the elephant, haven't you, at that point? Peter has to talk about the elephant in the room. It's not an actual elephant. The issue is this. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. One of the 12 chosen by Jesus to be with him and to go out and preach and cast out demons and heal the sick and preach the kingdom. One of Jesus' chosen apostles betrayed him. And we might say, of course he did. We know that. We know that from page one, because every time Judas gets a mention, I think pretty much every time he gets a mention, it's said, Judas, who would go on to betray Jesus, because it was such a massive shockwave. This isn't quite new for them. It's only a few weeks ago or days ago that they discovered that Judas would be prepared to do that. To betray his Lord and Saviour, well, the Lord and Saviour, betray him with a kiss. This sign of friendship, which was actually anything but. And they've got to process that, and that casts a massive shadow over the rest of them. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to proceed? Well, Peter knows now, it's really important at this point, and I will labour the point, that we see this as an example of godly leadership, not as a well-intentioned mistake. And some of you might have heard that, and I, I, I'd have at least one friend who I highly respect, who may have said, or you may have heard some other situation or setting, that it was a mis what, what happened in this passage was a mistake. They jumped the gun. They went too soon. God soon waits longer. And the idea goes that rather than cast lots and identify Matthias as joining the Twelve, they should have waited and they would have seen over time that someone else emerged. Years later, it would become apparent that Paul had an apostolic call on his life as well. So the theory goes, they shouldn't have cast lots, they shouldn't have, see, they shouldn't have sought to replace Judas with their own plan and idea. What they should have done is wait even longer and just wait for Paul to emerge in the course of time. He was clearly the 12th apostle. Well, actually, 
He wasn't in that sense. And I think this is really important for the sake of the application I'm about to bring later on, and maybe for the sake of every sermon you hear from this series in the book of Acts, I want you to know that is an unhelpful argument. And I'm going to try and refute it in a whole number of ways. Because I don't think that's what, Paul, uh, that's what Luke meant, and I don't think that's what God wants to take, to take away from the passage. And here are my reasons. Firstly, it's an argument from silence. You're going to have to work with subpoints now. We're still talking about godly leadership. That's my second point. And we may never get to the third one. Okay, subpoint sub point one. It's an argument from silence. Luke doesn't say it was a mistake. Not, and, and to use an argument from silence is a bit daft. The argument might go, well, we don't hear anything about Matthias after this point. So clearly he didn't do anything all that significant. Well, the fact is in the book of Acts, we don't hear about all that many that the other apostles did either. Luke's quite selective. He's going to tell us a lot about Peter. He's going to tell us quite, quite a fair bit about Paul later on. Um, and he's going to talk about other people like Stephen and Philip, who weren't apostles at all. So we shouldn't be drawing a conclusion from the fact that we don't hear much more about Matthias. We don't hear very much about loads of stuff that must have happened. So it's an argument from silence. But also, I would point you to the fact that Jesus has very recently had a lot of time with his disciples after his resurrection. And so we get verses like this in uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Jesus said to them after his resurrection, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Mo Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So Jesus has spent time with his apostles and he's opened their minds to the scriptures and he's gone through pretty much the entirety of the scriptures at that point. All that Moses wrote, all that the prophets brought and particularly where it speaks of Jesus in the Psalms and he's explained, this is how what happened to me fulfills scripture. I had to suffer, it's written here. So bear that in mind. Flip back over to Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. Implication, he's continuing to do and he's continuing to teach. But look, he spent that time and he then says, until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit, to the apostles he had chosen. Now we know what some of those instructions were. Wait in Jerusalem for the promise that's coming. But there's multiple instructions. He's opened his, their minds to the scripture and he's given them more instructions. So are we to think that Peter just cooked up his own little idea? I got, well, while we wait, there's nothing much else to do. I know, let's cast lots for something because I'm bored. That's not what Peter was doing. 
There's enough there for us to say, I think Peter was doing what Jesus told him to do. And not just then picking up random scripture. Oh, maybe, maybe that verse over there is to do with Judas. Really? Maybe, maybe that verse over there is to do with Judas. He's not picking it up as random. He's been taught by Jesus how to understand those Psalms. And those Psalms are about Jesus. Who experienced something much like David, who was the king of Israel and sometimes had friends turn against him and betray him. And so if David could write about that experience, and Jesus, all those years later, would be revealed as the king of Israel, is it not unsurprising that he would have experienced the same kind of stuff, be betrayed by a close friend, and that that person's position should be uh, replaced? So Peter is not just going off on one of his own idea, his own making. And then thirdly, look at Peter's explanation himself. He's not saying, lads, I've had an idea. He stands up and says, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled. And he'll go on to say, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. So he'll say things like, it's necessary, we must. And I'd argue it's really important that we see that Peter wasn't just standing on his own ideas, he was standing on the authority of the scripture as taught him by the risen saviour. And I think that is a pretty strong place to stand and we'd all do well to stand in exactly the same place. And I could point out too that Paul, when he writes all his letters, strangely doesn't seem to say, by the way, they should have waited because I'm the 12th apostle. He'll say, well, let's go there. I want you to put your fingers, I want you to see this is the Bible. This isn't me cooking something up either. So you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and get your finger and whack it on verse 3. For what I received, this is Paul, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. That's Paul saying that. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom are still living. Presumably, not all of them lived in Jerusalem. Though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. I'm a strange case, Paul might say. What Peter did was right. And Paul might say of himself, I was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. I can see but Peter and others, they're, they're called to be apostles in Jerusalem. I'm laboring the point on purpose because it's really important that we see the apostles not just acting on their own idea and that they did not make a mistake in what happened there. We can read parts of the New Testament and we can come up upon their weaknesses in the Gospels or on occasion when Peter does not need to be confronted for something he did wrong. 
They weren't perfect, they weren't infallible, but they were God's chosen men to lead the church. And the Bible would describe how the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the reason that's really important is because more and more in our day and age, people will say, well, the apostles, you see, they were just a product of their time. There's some things we can gain from them, but you've got to understand they were men of their age. And so they probably didn't just make lots of mistakes. And so we're not to take absolutely everything. We've got to kind of process it all. And it will sound very clever. It will sound very persuasive, but it's desperately unhelpful. Because we, the church of Jesus, are built on the foundation of apostles who were called by Jesus. Christ himself, the chief cornerstone, and the men that he had chosen to build the church upon. So we don't have freedom to flick through the pages of the New Testament and go, I don't like that bit. I'm not so sure about that bit. Now with my limited intellect, and possibly casting no aspersions, yours as well, it won't always be easy to understand. Peter could write that of what Paul himself had written. It's not always easy to understand. But this is the foundation that we are building on. We are not building our church on postmodernism. We're not building a church on the basis that my opinion or your opinion counts more than their opinion. We're a people under authority, under the authority of Jesus, who chose 12 apostles. And so when we turn through the pages of the New Testament, we praise God and we thank God for all of it. And we get hold of it, and we dig into it, and we choose to believe it, and we talk about it, and we pray it, and we learn it. And sometimes we're going to have to chew on it. And sometimes when it says things that are difficult, that do challenge the culture in which we live, and we hear so much that doesn't mesh up, doesn't match what the apostles say. If it's a choice, if there's a tug of war, guess which way we're going to go? Are we going to go with our culture that likes to kind of like grow new ideas and interpretations, or are we going to go with God's word? Are we, going to, are we going to trust God when it's really challenging? I've got a great example. And this isn't, I'm not trying to be contentious. And I, I would imagine that when, when Luke recorded this and when Peter said it, it was not the most controversial thing to say. It was incidental. If you want to know the main point, of this passage, where's it gone? I think Luke is saying, trust the apostles. They've got integrity. Jesus chose them. And the Spirit of God is at work, was at work through them, and is still at work in the foundation that they laid. Now, I'm not sure exactly when the book of Acts was written. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, lest they true to the apostolic gospel. I think that's the message. I think that's what Luke was trying to get across. 
I think that's what we're called to do now a couple of millennia later. So let me show you a bit that was maybe the most offensive part to, the, to possibly how a lot of people think today. In verse 21, I would suggest this massively offends the spirit of our age. Peter says, therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men. And on he goes. It's necessary to choose one of the men. That is outrageous, isn't it? Is that not outrageous? Would your colleagues not think that was utterly outrageous? Maybe your neighbours, maybe your friends, maybe you think that's utterly outrageous. It's necessary to choose one of the men. What are you talking about, someone might say? Like Mary, we've got Mary, the mother of Jesus, she's there. Maybe we've got Mary and Martha, the other Mary, there as well. They'd sat at the feet of Jesus. They were part of the, the disciples. We're going to go through the book of Acts and we're going to meet amazing women. We're going to meet Tabitha, who was so important, who was such a blessing to her local church, that when she died, the church just like go to Peter and say, just in the name of Jesus, raise her from the dead. I mean, you've not met her yet. She is awesome. Please. <laughs> you kind of think the implications. We don't mind about so-and-so. We don't mind so-and-so. But you can't take Tabitha. We want Tabitha in this church. This church isn't done with Tabitha, and Tabitha isn't done with this church. Please, in the name of Jesus, raise her from the dead. She was influential. She was valuable. There'll be other examples of, of influential women, but we won't get to Sapphira just yet. But know that we'll get to, we'll get to Lydia in Philippi, in chapter 16, and she opened her heart to the message. And a church started in her house. What a courageous woman. An earlier adopter, early adopter of the message, paving the way for others to come in. There's almost, one could imagine, although I don't know if it's definitely the case, that she and the rest of the church there in Philippi, this brand new group of believers, are working out how to how to help this young slave girl who's just been set free from a demon and been abandoned by her slave owners. No, you can come and be part of the church. We're going to love you. So we're going to meet Lydia, and she's amazing. We're going to meet Priscilla, and in chapter 18, she's amazing. But right back here in chapter 1, it's necessary to choose one of the men. This passage, I mean, it's, it's peculiar. We're not repeating that process. We don't need to go find the 12th apostle. That's been done. But let this passage be an encouragement to you, men. That God has called you and chosen you to be powerfully useful in his church and in his kingdom and I'm saying it and I'm still going and normally it's me who's a bit funny about the time um, because it's important because you won't hear that 
in many other places. It's good for men to be leading. I mean, you can be a godly man, you can be an evil man. I'm encouraging you to be a godly man. I'm not encouraging you to lead in, in a, as a tyrant might lead. And there'll be lots of voices that might say, that's the big problem. That's the problem we need to deal with. The problem is, too many men have been tyrants. and They've been domineering. And we don't need to go through the examples right now. Of course there are lots of them. But there might be a bigger problem. At least an equal problem. It's not men being tyrants. It's men being passive. Because we hear so often that men have been the problem. There's even a word, and I know it's slightly tongue-in-cheek. Back in the day, if someone was condescending, you might just say, they were, they're condescending. They're, they're talking to me as if I'm bound not to understand. They're explaining, to something, they're explaining something to me in an oversimplified way. And I feel patronized. Do you know what? We've got a word for that. It's being condescending. But now you could probably turn into a dictionary and find that if a man does it, it's called mansplaining. Have any, have any, and maybe there are some people who need to repent of this mansplaining. Well, the problem is not just being condescending. The problem is you're a man being, con, being condescending. And so maybe like 5% of men just ignore it and continue in their condescending ways, and just puff out their chests a little bit more. But 95% of men go, I don't want to be accused of mansplaining. So the line of least resistance is just keep your head down and be silent. And don't attempt in God, for other people's benefit, to explain anything at all. Just be ready to say things like, well, of course, that's just my opinion. Or, or slightly sanctified versions of, well, it's true for me, but I know it might not be true for you. But actually, to be prepared to explain something and to speak up. Be humble and gentle like Jesus and be courageous and adventurous like Jesus. And maybe read about George Whitfield and John Wesley and others who've done crazily adventurous and dangerous things for the sake of more people knowing and believing about uh, believing in Jesus. And for young guys, uh, the picture that I have in mind is of a truck or a van pulling a trailer or maybe pulling a, a caravan. And you, you, maybe you've seen this on screen or in real life, heading to holiday, and the car's driving along and it's pulling something behind it, and it's actually like bouncing around. The trailer is just like bouncing around and it's, it's, it's swaying around, or even like hopping from one wheel to another. And the problem is, in this picture that is in my mind, is that the trailer is empty. And we could think to ourselves as, as young guys, I'll be young for a moment, driving along in life, 
this is a bit overwhelming. I, I don't quite know how to handle this. If I could just get this trailer to stop bouncing around and stop swaying between the lanes, maybe if I really learn to drive well, there'll come a point where I can carry some load in that trailer because I'll be ready and I'll, I'll have learned how to drive an empty one. That feels safe, that feels sensible. But then you've got to ask yourself, what's the trailer designed to do? And maybe the trailer is bouncing around because it's not got anything in it. And it could feel like it cuts against the grain and doesn't make sense. But actually, the thing to do to help you in life is put something in the trailer. Carry some responsibility. Pull a load for the sake of the church and the kingdom. Grab some responsibility or allow someone else to put it in your load. I'm not, I'm not ready yet. No, look, it's still snaking about. Maybe that sounds reckless. But don't, don't wait till life feels perfectly manageable to take on some responsibility in God. That responsibility will bless you. It will help you. And you'll drive true and straight, carrying what God's asking you to do. It's not very good always to use yourself as an example. So please forgive me. But just briefly, I might mention, I became an elder in this church at the age of 27. A couple of months, a month, a few weeks before our eldest daughter was born. When, when hands were laid on me, Rach was heavily pregnant with the girl who prophesied last week. By first-hand experience, I knew nothing about leading a church. And I'm, by first-hand experience, I knew nothing about being a dad. And God ordained that I'd learn about both of them, both at once. God can call you to something sooner than you think you're ready. You could be 25. Don't wait till you're 35. Don't just delay. Know that God wants it. Know that you're called to it. And know that as a community, we'll back you up. Because the strange weirdness of becoming an elder at the age of 27 is looking around me and thinking, there's loads of guys. They, they're good dads. They're doing well. But God's called me to do something. Don't wait forever. Take it on now. And bear this in mind, Matthias, I'm still going. A little bit more. Matthias was stepping into the unknown. He wasn't taking on a responsibility that was neatly packaged up for him when the organisation got in touch and said there's a vacancy. Because sometimes what we can do is we can look around and hope that there's somebody else. Hope that it's already set up. They were, start, they were building, well, not exactly from scratch, but they were building from just this group, 120. They didn't have other guys to look up to who'd gone ahead of them other than Jesus. They looked at each other and they thought, right, this is with us. 
And I can't just say, I'll do that for a year. But you understand, I might need to step back. They had to commit. They had to go for it, not knowing the future. To lead the church of Christ. They couldn't just kind of like chuck it to someone else. Oh, I've, I've, I've done it now. I'm going to let someone else have their turn being an apostle. No, no one else can carry what God's going to give you. And it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be doing it forever and a day. But don't look for God to say, let me package this perfectly for you. With a neat job description. And everything worked out. And clear line management structures. Matthias stepped into a breach. And he led and he cast himself on God. And now you can see why it was so important for them to be a praying community. Dads of younger kids in these moments, stop trying to engage your children. Stop trying to engage your children. I'll unpack that more over conversation another time. Your reason for being here in this building is not to engage your children. Don't set that up as your purpose. Because if your kids come along with you to a church of the risen Jesus, and they think to themselves, Dad's priority seems to be engaging with me. It might take a while, but after a couple of years, they'll be thinking, Dad, why are you here then? Why engage me here? We, you could just engage me on the football pitch. You could engage me in something else. If engaging me is important, let's do it at home. So stop engaging your children. I don't mean ignore them. I don't mean be harsh with them. I mean it's perfectly okay with child in arms to say, ask me later. Just hang on a minute. Someone's praying in tongues. Stay with me. I'm worshipping God. I was chatting to a dad recently who was saying just that. I, I sometimes just tell, tell my child, be quiet. I'm listening. Your job here is not to engage your children. Now, change your nappy. Take them to the toilet if they're really little. Help them find a notebook and draw a picture sometimes. It's not your goal. Your reason for, I think, your reason for being here is to engage with God yourself. And in so doing, over the weeks and the months and the years, you will provide a model for your children in what it means to engage with God on purpose. Engage with God like that praying community. Engage with God like your life depends on it because your life does depend on it. Because you're about to go back out to your front line. You're about to go back into a world which is going to try and squash you. You're going to, try, you're going to go back into a world which doesn't believe in Jesus. You're going to go back into the world that told George Whitfield and John Wesley to be quiet and will say the same thing to you. You're going back into a world where you've got responsibility and you're supposed to lead. Go and be a captain of the team. Go and do well at work as a believer and as a disciple of Jesus. Keep learning, keep pulling a load, don't pull over, don't stop, don't be silent, because the world depends upon a church that is fully alive and vibrant 
with the gospel of Jesus. And if the men aren't vibrant, give it a few years and no one will be vibrant. Because that's never happened before. Sometimes you clap at the beginning and I think maybe you shouldn't. Because if men are called to lead by the risen Lord Jesus, and men are becoming hopeless, feeling squashed, silent, but inwardly pondering, what is the purpose of my life? But if, and if God has designed that men lead, that's where we'll all end up. So please don't hear this as that I'm not interested in women or that the Bible isn't interested and that God doesn't care about your kids. But men, if we're not alive in passionate, zealous bravery for Jesus, we're heading nowhere. We're heading worse than nowhere. Let's look to the promises of Jesus. Let's hold to the instructions in the New Testament. Let's pray like our lives depended on it. Let's keep in mind a mission for a church that is global, for lives that are impacted across the world. Let's get ready for not just what we need to cope with the next week, but let's look to a world that still needs to hear the gospel and let's go for that. Those are the conditions. I didn't really talk about the third one. A praying community. Godly leadership. With the scripture right in the center. If we get those three conditions, God sends a spark. God sends a flame and a wildfire of good gospel power goes woof quickly and remarkably. That's what we want. So our responsibility is to get the conditions right. Amen. Amen.